When I talk to people, I don't say schools. I say places currently called schools because I want them to stop and attend to what is it that we're doing? What are we noticing? Because the lexicon that we are in, in the old story, will never allow us to write a new one. I never asked the question how. I never asked it. I say, what will it take? Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Stephanie Pace Marshall, author of The Power to Transform. Stephanie is a storyteller and a map maker. She's an inspiring speaker, author, writer, and advisor. She offers a fundamentally new story of learning grounded in the principles of living systems and how life creatively organizes itself to thrive. Her work has helped shape the reimagination and redesign of learning. She has based her career on a singular truth, which I will quote here, learning must liberate the goodness and genius that resides within each child and its design must ignite and nurture the power and creativity of the human spirit for the world. I'm so excited to have had the chance to speak with Stephanie. Her views on living systems, her views on how schools uh, should but organized around learning, around developing those living systems is so powerful that you'll see she provokes you to abandon the word school, to create a new lexicon for a new paradigm, to move beyond what we think of school because it has so much baggage and emerge into new ways of thinking, new mental models, and new ways, of course, of being with one another through the interconnectedness and understanding through the lens of living systems. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Stephanie. It's part of our efforts to bring in the conversation around living systems. Check out our blog on www.coconut-thinking.design. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Stephanie. Well, hi, Stephanie. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Really interested in your views and uh, the experiences that you have over in uh, in the States and in the world, uh, and, and also just the perspective you bring about living systems and how that's a refreshing, uh, at least in my mind, um, way to approach leadership and learning and um, just, just to ha- have this conversation. Um, so I've got a lot of questions, but I'll start with the ones that we always start with, which is who are you and what story do you want to tell? And how do I define learning? That was a really another good one. They were all good, really good questions. And- Thank you, Benjamin, for the invitation. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. So um, the first one, who are you? Uh, um, I, I, uh, I separated it into um, two categories, I guess, the seen and the unseen. You know, the part of me that is uh, visible to the world, what people see, is, uh, and that's sort of the overstory, you know, the chronology, what I've done. So I'm a lifelong educator. Um, I'm, I have led systems, school districts. I created an institution called the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy, which in 1983 was the first three-year public residential institution for kids of exceptional talent. Uh, in the U.S., and it may have gone further than that. It's it's pretty renowned now. I left in 2007. Well, I was there almost 25 years as the as the founder, founding president. Um, I was the president of ASCD. Those of those of your people who are on the phone who are educators know the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. That 
that is a major international organization. Um, I speak, I write, I consult with all kinds of, uh, I want to say sometimes companies, but people that are just curious about, so how do you do this? Whatever the this is, and we'll talk about that, but countries, entities, um, and I'm working on my third book right now. Uh, so that's the part you see. The part you don't see, which is the understory, has been called, not by me, the journey of the soul of the main character. Uh, so how I define that for myself, um, when I looked at your question, what popped in my mind first is I have always thought of myself and sometimes even call myself a child of the center, which meant, means to me that I can speak the languages that the world speaks. I grew up in a home where my father was a nuclear mechanical engineer. My mother was a singer and a dancer. Uh, we began um, to speak a multiplicity of languages. So I'm an insatiable connector. I can connect science and music. I can connect music. And so when I say child of the center, it means I, I am a weaver. Your, your question provoked that. So what are you really? I'm a weaver. I'm a storyteller. And what I, one of the ways I think I am able to serve, I hope anyway, is I hold up a mirror to the people with whom I interact. I listen. And then I reflect back what I see in them, which are always astonishing gifts, and name them. And usually it's, really? Really? You see that in me? Yeah, I, I actually do. Because I'm, I'm amazed and saddened. It's true for all of us. You know, if you gave someone a piece of paper and, and said, write down all the things you can't do really well, They'd write a whole page and then they'd say, you got any more paper? And they'd write another. But if you said, write down your gifts, most people would stare at it first. So that's who I am. And so then the question is, what story do you want to tell? So um, it's, it's connected to who I am. I want to, I want to tell the story of weaving and connections and gifts and flourishing and thriving and um, how I, uh, I it, as I am with the, the, the people that I invited to create the Illinois Math and Science Academy, um, it was very clear to me in the mid eighties, um, I read uh, Chaos, the book Chaos by James Gleck it was new at the time. So it's 19, 1986, 1987. And I read it on Christmas day. I read it all night through the evening. I woke up the next day and I said to my husband, okay, uh, if science can quote, change its mind that we don't live in a me mechanistic universe, we don't live in a Cartesian universe. The universe is not a clock, but it's a living, breathing, complex, adaptive system. If science can think differently, based on new information, I guess I can too. So I went the next, after, after the holidays, Christmas holidays, I went to my science team and said, okay guys, you gotta teach me about living systems. 
And that began my study of living systems. So the new story that I want to tell is we are all, and it's not new to me by any means. Um, it's, I call it, it's the real story of who we are and how we are. Uh, right now we're living in a very mechanistic, still the paradigm is linear. Um, uh, and that's not the way the natural world works. It isn't the way we work. So I tell the story of living systems and I, my first book, The Power to Transform, took that narrative of the science and translated it into, so what would, if we were serious about designing human systems where life was our mirror and mentor, what, what might it look like? And then I invented a school called Aspen, the Aspen Grove Center for Imagination and Inquiry. Uh, so the new story I wanna tell is our story of weaving and integration and wholeness and connections and not separate parts, uh, generativity. When I started IMSA, I had one question, what would it take to create a generative and life-affirming system of learning and schooling that liberates the goodness and genius of every child and ignites and nurtures the power and creativity of the human spirit for the world. And my, that was literally my question. And my response was not answer, because I do not use that word anymore. I never say answer, I say respond, because I don't have an answer for anything, but I have a response to everything, <laughs> uh, was it's gonna take a new story, going to take a new map and it's going to take a new landscape of learning and schooling and that was the book the power to transform and so this brings us actually many many different directions but the the one direction that i will take is and and this will segue uh, very nicely i usually ask how do you define learning but in this context clearly there's going to be an opposition maybe not opposition is the right word but but certainly um a differentiation between uh, the mechanistic world in which we live and maybe what most people see as learning and, and then the, the living systems. So so how do you define learning? Okay, so I love this question too. I love all your questions. Um, uh, and so I just jotted down, how do I define learning? All right, learning is a live encounter, active engagement. It is a relational process. It's about what people I say children in my notes, but people experience, construct, invent, imagine, dream, and connect. It is messy and unpredictable, which means what the heck does it mean to be in third grade? Just because you're eight, you're in third grade? What does that mean? Learning is creative. It's inquiry-driven. Uh, it's a collaborative process of sense-making and constructing meaning. It is about novelty and integration and surprise. Uh, challenge engages the brain, uh, brings attention, not threat. Um, so there is a total mismatch. I mean, we could go, we could spend the whole time on what is learning. Total mismatch between how we learn and who we are, because we're learning all the time. Every living system is a learning system. Learning is a cognitive enterprise. Um, and, every, and so much of what we do in places currently called schools, and I don't use, when I talk to people, I don't say schools. I say places currently called schools because I want them to stop and attend to 
What is it that we're doing? What are we noticing? The design uh, implies a certain kind of belief and grounding in how we learn. And that isn't how we learn. We don't learn because we're in we're eight and we're in third grade. We learn because we're curious and we seek to understand. So constructing meaning, I would say that's the ground of learning. And one of the things that pops out to me in how you describe how you see learning, how you how you feel learning, how you think about and conceptualize learning is the words that you use surprise, challenge, um, creative, uh, inquiry, um, the and, and my my the one that really that I underlined, um, relational process, because the way you describe it isn't outcome, isn't, oh, well, it allows us to change this or do that. It, it is a process, as you say, because it's never ending. Right. Yeah. And it's a process of, I would, you know, I, I use the word constructing meaning intentionally because it's a multiplicity of meanings. When I started off, you, you know, who am I? A child of the center? Well, that child quote, sitting in an institution currently called school is told, okay, now you're in social studies class. This is what we're learning. And then the bell rings and now you're in science class. And this is what we're learning. And then the bell rings and now we're in, you know, I obviously, <laughs> I was in, in places like that. However, when I got home, the dinner conversation was never, so what did you learn in school today? Never. It was, what questions did you ask in school today? And so from a very early age, my brother and I learned that it was the question that mattered. It was the inquiry that mattered. It was the pursuit that mattered. It was not knowing that mattered. It was seeking that mattered. That is so fundamental. Now, I didn't have all that language when I was seven and eight, and, but I got it, that it was the question. And so I became insatiable, insatiably curious, as did my brother, about questions and language. And that's, that's where I live. That's where I live as, as an adult. I mean, I, I look at everything through the lens of inquiry. And I look at everything through the lens of what is the lexicon that we are using to describe this right now? Because the lexicon that we are in, in the old story, will never allow us to write a new one. It's a paradigm. A paradigm is translated into language. And the language that we speak in every human institution, mostly I'm, I'm making a generalization, uh, is not a language that is ever going to get us to connections and wholeness and integration and inter interconnectedness because it's a separate, it's a language of separation. It's a language of parts. It's a language of, of um, independence, not interdependence. So, um, yeah, now I forgot your question, but <laughs> in my response, but. Um, but we're, ta we're talking about learning as a process, and and I guess this is also you know moving into you, you started to, to speak about as well living systems and how all organizations living systems are learning systems as well. So maybe maybe for some of our of our listeners who might not be as familiar with what a living system is, maybe you can describe that. What what makes a living system, and how is that different from the way we usually conceptualize not just systems but the way things work? Yeah, well, if you go back to um 
you know, Newton, and I'm not picking on him, a clockwork universe. Um, the, the mental model is, well, it's a clock and we wind it or set it. Uh, if it breaks down, we take out the broken piece and we fix it and we put in a new piece and then it keeps running along. It's highly predictive. We know exactly where it's going. We schedule everything around it because it represents uh, environmental truth. That's how things work. Well, a living system doesn't have parts. Uh, everything is connected. It's a dynamic, interdependent, relational, interconnected network. So everything is connected to everything else. So in school, places called school, or in any, you know, any human system, and I do think the conversation right now is actually on living systems. I mean, there's a lot of conversation <laughs> and dialogue, and it has been since we started really in the mid 80s learning about nonlinear dynamics because they're not the same. Uh, complexity, you know, we talk about, boy, this is really complicated. Anytime anyone says to me, this is really complicated, I say, no, 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 no. It's not complicated. It's complex. Complicated means a lot of stuff and nothing's connected. Complex means a lot's going on, but everything is connected. That's what makes it so much more difficult. And in that difficulty, that's that's where sometimes the breakdown comes when we think about things in terms of problem solutions, including kids. Going back, bringing it back to you, talk about the gifts. We think about deficits and kids. We have to find problems and interventions for the solutions rather than see them as assets. Exactly right. Exactly right. So if we were to look at uh, a human institution or a system through a lens of Cartesian physics, or uh, it, then, you know, we'd see parts. We'd see kids, exactly to your point, they're deficits, so we got to fix them. We remediate and we give them all kinds of other things. But if we recognize that we are nature, we are living independently and as people, we are living systems. We are connected to our environment. We're connected to every dimension of other life. Then you say, all right, what are the dynamics? and principles uh, of living system. And so um, identity, and I could go back over all of these, but I'll just identity. Uh, what that means in a living system is a boundary. What that means in a human system is purpose and meaning and values. I mean, I could, so in my, my first book, I translated, so it's identity, information, and what information means in a living system are the nutrients that we bring into the system that gives us the generative, that gives us life. In a human system, it's what, what do we gather to see if we are honoring and being true to our identity? So an AP score, and I'm not picking on AP, but I'm saying if we want to, using the definition of learning that I, you know, I talked about before, it's constructing meaning and integration and connecting the languages of the disciplines in a holistic way, then what kinds of assessment, what kinds of information do we need to put into our system to actually say, are we honoring our generative purpose? You know, I use the words generative, 
people use regenerative, regenerative, putting life back and life affirming. That's not how typical schools would be defined right now. So a living system, we look at identity, information, fundamentally relationships, processes, structures, and patterns. There is a patterned integrity to living systems. They and there is, and living systems are in network. So if you applied, and there's lots to say about all of those things from a science perspective, and then translating what does it mean? What's fidelity to the science, and how does that translate into human systems? That's why when I wrote uh, the Power to Transform, I invented a place called the Aspen Grove Center for Imagination and Inquiry, and invited the reader walk with me into this place called Aspen Grove Center. And I chose the word Aspen Grove because if you if if anybody's ever been to Utah or any place where you see uh, an aspen grove or just forest. Um, an aspen grove is one root system. Could be could have 80,000 trees in an aspen grove, one root system. I loved the metaphor. That's who we are. And so I wanted to know what, what would it take? What might it look like to create an aspen grove center for imagination and inquiry where there is, there is clarity at the root? That's the identity and the information and the relationships. So, I mean, there's a lot to talk about that, but it's a fundamentally different uh, paradigm and, and lens. And, and the sad thing now is the lens that we have been looking through for hundreds of years. Uh, people are shifting, of course. We're beginning to realize that we are all connected. And if we don't, if we don't connect at a very deep um, patterned level, um, all bets are off to, to how well we do. We're not doing real well now. And I, I think of, it sounds pejorative, but I see uh, um, uh, places in many places currently called schools. Um, uh, they are in the midst of what I call identity theft. Children, uh, all of us, <laughs> are inherently curious and exploratory. It goes back to what I understand about learning. If in fact you do not honor that and encourage what questions did you ask in school today, you are putting them into a deficiency mindset. And unfortunately, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are the stories we live and we become them and they're very, very difficult to undo. And so I had a, an experience um, many years ago that allowed me to take the science of living systems um, and say, how do I translate this really? And I went to the, it's a long story, but I went to the, and I'm not gonna tell you, but I went to the outback of Australia and actually spent 10 days walking song lines with Aboriginal elders. And I came back with a metaphor of a song line. And a song line is a story, it's a map, and it's a landscape. And so I took the principles of living systems and said, what's the story? What's the map? And what's the landscape? And that's the design of Aspen Grove. That's the design of a new system that's generative and life-affirming. But the power of story, I don't think people realize 
how entrenched it is um, and how difficult it is to undo a story that you have been living your entire life. So we have to illuminate the, as you were, as you were saying, the new story, the real story, and give people the opportunity to experience what that feels like, because that's who we are. And this is the part as well, when we write a story with a lexicon, as you mentioned, we need a new lexicon because words have value. And if we don't change the words, we keep the same values. And people talk about the post-pandemic world, how it's never going to be the same. But so long as we value the same things, it will stay the same. We've been talking about changing schools since John Dewey, Maria Montessori. But with the same values, it's going to be the same conversation for another 100 years if, if we stay around. And it's, to me, it's even beyond values. I mean, values are the manifestations of the paradigm or the narrative that we're living. It's all part of that. And it, it made sense to actually say, well, if this is so, I'm going back now. If this is how the universe works, I guess it makes sense to design human systems in the same way. So that's what we did. They had parts. They could be counted. If there was a deficient part, you took it out and you replaced it. But you just, you followed the paradigm. It, you have ladders of achievement. You have ways to measure. Um, if, you, if, you, if you get what it is, great. If you don't, well, then you have to redo it. Whatever the paradigm, that's a deeply entrenched, lived narrative. And so it's one thing to say, you know, you look at corporate America, and we, what, what's the language? You know, climbing the corporate ladder. What the heck is, nature doesn't have any ladders. Nature, nature weaves. So it is so fundamentally different, but it's so it will take a real mind shift, uh, but it has to be the mind shift happens when, as you say, the lexicon changes and, this, and we're situated in what, in life, what does that, what does that mean? I remember once I was uh, walking around the math, the math and science academy with a, do a donor uh, who uh, I was hoping would give us lots of money. He later did, but he walked around and he said, um, this is such a great school. This is such a great school. I'm surprised. I'm good. And I finally stopped him and I said, ah, with all due respect. If you say the word school one more time, and this is literally, I am going to have to smack you. And when I said it, I thought, what, what did you just say? This is a donor. You don't say those kinds of things to donors. And he, we were walking and he stopped. And he said, what do, you, what do you mean? You're a school. And I said, no, we're not. He said, well, then what are you? And I said, we are a laboratory for imagination and inquiry. And if I didn't tell you that, and you left here thinking we were a school, you would think you knew exactly what we did. And then I would have to spend all my time telling you, no, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. No, we don't do that. Why would I spend time telling you what we don't do as opposed to telling you what we do do? And at that time, there were 30 kids that came through the building with drums and musical instruments in a long line led by the English professor. And he looked at me and he said, oh, is that your band? And I said, no, that's an, that's an 
English class. And he said, well, what are they doing? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know, but it's probably, they probably read a poem and the professor wanted them to practice what iambic pentameter felt like. And he looked at me as if, I mean, and finally he said, Steph, I don't get it. I said, I understand, but you will by the time you leave. But you see, that's a story, but it's so indicative. This is a math and science institution. Why are you playing music walking around the building about iambic pentameter in a poem? Well, because it, that the music person will then at some point in time be talking to the physics person and the chemistry person and the mathematics person because it's all connected. And um, th this idea, this, this Cartesian, um, uh, Newtonian, Duality. Duality. <laughs> and, and also Bacon, you know, that's tortured nature's secret. It's out of her or whatever, whatever he said to paraphrase that. It's, it's, um, it's really what 17th, 18th century enlightenment thinking. But really, if we go back farther than that, and certainly if we look at the whole globe, that's not what most of civilization has really, how they've conceptualized the world. You mean in, in terms of ind indigenous people and all Indigenous yes. cultures in Asia and even pre-enlightenment European people saw the world in very different ways with connections with nature. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You're absolutely right, and I think uh, we are we are not only becoming more responsive and curious about we are actually inviting indigenous leaders and people into the conversation now in ways that just was not part of it because they were. You know, they were not as advanced as, as we were, right? And now we're realizing that um, advanced doesn't mean high up, it means deep down. I mean, you cannot, in this, in this process of transformation, transformation is to change the nature and quality of something. It's a fundamental, it's, it's the classic metaphor of the caterpillar and the butterfly. And I remember uh, years ago, I was saying to my board, this is not an institute, we're not interested in reform. This was, we were in the reform conversation in the 80s and 90s, everybody was. I said, we're not about reform. Reform means to fix what is. Transform means to change the form and nature of something. We don't get it, Steph. Okay, let me just write something for you. So I wrote a one page, brought it back to the board, yeah, you know, we had a Nobel laureate on the board. This was a very high-powered board. Okay, so I brought it back, and they read it and said, well, this is really interesting, but we still don't get the difference between reform and transformation. Okay, let me write you, let me, let me write, you know, another one. Because I'm a writer, that's not a problem. So I wrote it like a two-page paper, brought it back. Well, this is more, this is more clear. Uh, and then I said, you know what? I could write you a five-page paper. I could write you a 10-page paper on the difference between reform and transformation. But let me, this is not working. So I went to the art teacher and I said, I need your help. Um, here's what I need to do. And I cannot figure out with language how to help them. And he said, well, tell me the difference between reform and transformation. So I did. And I said, you know, it's like a caterpillar and a butterfly. So he wrote, he drew, took out a piece of paper he put a line down the center. He put a caterpillar on, on the left side, a butterfly on the right side. And then he drew uh, a caterpillar on roller skates, a caterpillar with wings on its back, 
a caterpillar on a skateboard. And then on the other side, he drew a butterfly. And he said, and I said, ah, you can add wings to a caterpillar, but all you get is an awkward and dysfunctional caterpillar. Butterflies are created through transformation. So I brought this back to my board and my board chairman looked at me and he said, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? So <laughs> that's the, I mean, that's the work we have to do. And then because transformation is so internal, we have to shift because you, what I said before, you cannot create what you've not become. You have to be it. You have to be the storyteller. You have to live it. You have to walk it. Um, I never asked the question how. I never ask it. I say, what will it take? If someone says something, I'll never say, well, how will we do that? Because how is a Cartesian question? It's a strategy. You know, how, does, how are we going to do that? I haven't a clue how to do it. But I do know the conditions that will make it more likely. And that's the question when you empower people within the context of a living system, it frees them up. The space is enormous. And so as an individual, goes back to who am I, I live simultaneously in what I call three worlds. And I weave them all the time. The first is uh, for now. I live in the present for now. Um, the third one, this one in the middle, the third one is still possible. And the one in the center is mystery. And I do not have to understand mystery. I have experienced mystery. I don't have to make sense of it. I don't have to say, well, that, why did that happen? Synchronicity or serendipity, it happened. And I hold it as a blessing. I don't know why it happened. I don't know how it happened. It doesn't matter, but I learned something. So for now, mystery and still possible. And that opens up a space where anything is on the table. That's what living systems do. They explore, they create, they adapt. They're, you know, the complexity is everything because everything is connected. You pull one thing and everything can shift. And that's the possibility we are in now. Of course, emergence is agnostic. Horrible things can emerge. Ukraine. I mean, horrible thing. Emergence doesn't mean it's going to turn out well. It doesn't. But we have, when we think in terms of living systems and the principles and dynamics of identity and information and relationships and patterns and networks, we can understand. Uh, the actions that are more likely to shift something in the direction toward generativity and life affirming as opposed to not. I mean, you look at what's happening in Ukraine, but you also look at the grace, the generosity, the kindness um, simultaneously to the horror and the evil. And this is going back to the distinction you made between response and answer. Whereas answer is definite, a response allows for dialogue to emerge. Exactly right. Exactly. And exactly right. And what will it take is not how do I do something. It opens up, it opens up enormous space. 
And that's part of what um, I'm not sure we're, we're co cognizant of all the time in, in places currently called schools, because we think there is an answer, because we think there is a way, because there think, we think there is a defined protocol that God knows you can't get out of that. The, the space gets so small. And for a child who thinks differently uh, or connected or just has a different experience because of who they are, that is the most toxic and frightening of environments. And they don't know who they really are because who they are is so denied by the system. Not because we're evil, that's how we thought things work. But now, thank God, we're learning <laughs> with complexity and, uh, and you know, there's so much conversation now, people understand, you know, generative uh, agriculture and regenerative health systems and all of that. I mean, that's a messy conversation, but it's the right conversation to be in. And that's my interest now, is convening the conversation. It doesn't mean we don't convene because we have answers. We convene because we, we know how to create big space for what is still possible. And that allows people um, to dream, to, to imagine. Um, you know, Carl Sagan came to visit our institution and he said, dreams are maps. And I thought, well, hell, if he can say dreams are maps, I guess we can say the same thing. And I, you know, that's just, we, we don't hold that. Um, and so kids leave places called schools, sometimes knowing very clearly what they're not good at, but not who they really are. Talk to us a little bit about what it would be like to walk into the doors of Aspen Grove. What would we see? What would we feel? What would we hear? How, how would a child experience that on his first day on, in, in their third year? What would that be like? Well, I, you know, I, <laughs> I actually describe that. Um, and I made, I made it up. I mean, in some cases, I, you know, the, the Math and Science Academy had many components of that. Uh, we, were, we were, you know, so I didn't say, all right, this is IMSA, but I, I described that. But Aspen Grove, um, uh, um, you, you walk it, well, even with IMSA, you walk in the door, um, very, very few walls, number one. There are places, um, there are learning environments, but we don't, wouldn't call them classrooms. Um, they are, um, uh, kids are, would not be in desks in rows. They'd be sitting with peers in circles or what, whatever. I guess the, the, you know, the physical arrangement would be very different. Um, I've had you know, this one gentleman, but many others would walk into uh, a, a, a learning environment uh, in, uh, typically called a classroom at IMSA and say, well, where's the teacher? And I thought, well, she's over there. Well, where, oh, really? And then we'd walk, well, where's the teacher? Because they're not standing in the front of the room. So kids would be engaged. They'd be, they'd be engaged in real world issues and problems. Problem-based learning was a ground of ours. Integrative ways of knowing was a ground of ours. So the science teacher and the English teacher and the social science teacher would meet together periodically to say, where are you in, in your, you know, in the process of curriculum and how can we make meaning? Um, uh, so it would be open, it would be exploratory, there would be an enormous amount of energy. 
there would be kids, uh, you know, doing goofy things at the lunchroom table and somebody say, oh, I got to get a picture of this because I got to show this to the science teacher because I've never seen that happen in a Coke bottle. I mean, things like that, they sound weird and silly, but it's an alive, dynamic place. It's not a, um, and it's, it's connected. The, the rules we had, uh, I'll, and I'll put rules in quotes, uh, really came from one of a, uh, it's a residential institution, so they were, you know, kids lived together. Um, one of the resident counselors who said, um, you know, early on, we decided we needed our own rules. Really? What were they? Because, uh, you know, you walk, sometimes you walk into a school and it says, you know, don't run, don't yell, don't um, take care of yourself, take care of each other, take care of this place. Those are the only rules. And do kids know what that meant? Yeah, they actually did. And they didn't have to worry about, am I running? Am I doing so, you know, we didn't care if they ran. We didn't care, you know, obviously we were looking for health things, but um, fluid, dynamic, uh, surprise. You know, when I saw the 30 kids with their iambic pentameter playing instruments, faculty that engage with one another, we'd, we'd have something in the early years called a call for dialogue. And a call for dialogue, any faculty member could call for it at any time. We didn't have classes on Wednesdays. Kids were out in the community and in the state doing their own independent research. So they weren't even always in the facility. Um, so kids did a lot of their own inquiry and, and small group work. But at those on those days, the faculty could call, anyone could, a call for dialogue. And what that me meant is, let me tell you, um, a concept that I'm trying to work with and I'm having trouble. And here's what I've done. I've, you know, I helped the kids with this and I showed them that and I brought them this to read and they're still not getting it. <clears throat> what ideas do you have? Well, you have, you have the physics teacher and the chemistry teacher and the math teacher and the music teacher and the physical education instructor and anyone sitting there listening to, okay, this concept in physics and it's not working. How might we? connect to that, that it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's actually harder than rocket science <laughs> because it's, it's letting go of everything we thought we knew in terms of learning and teaching. And it's saying, I am going to trust myself, my community, my peers, the children, if we are clear about our identity, who and how we are, our purpose, what and why we do what we do, the values that we hold, the relationships that are non-negotiable, which are interdependent and connected, the patterns, you know, we have our, our mission statement um, that is very clear about uh, the generativity and life-affirming and a laboratory for imagination and inquiry. Uh, so, over time, it becomes the air you breathe. Uh, but there is an ease about it, a huge challenge, because you're going against a paradigm. But uh, when you see when you see the children, and they come alive in ways that they haven't before, um, you know, I had so I've had so many experiences, and in, in as a superintendent and as a teacher. Uh, one, uh, just one quick story. I was 
I was observing a class of an elementary school class, um, first grade, uh, when I was a superintendent. And uh, I was there because the mother was beside herself. The teacher and psychologist had said, absolutely not. The mother said, my daughter is in, is in first grade. She is so advanced, she needs to go to third grade. And the teacher said, absolutely not. You can't go from first grade to third grade. Psychologist said, no, that's absolutely not. And I decided I'm gonna go in and listen to the children, um, which is what I've always done. I, I think of myself as a child whisperer in some ways, because I do, I know how to listen to children. Uh, so I went in and I, well, I watched her um, and she was stunning. She's first grade, uh, uh, and um, uh, I, I, she. Before I was leaving, she goes like this, you know, come over here, and I came over and she said, "I know why you're here." And I said, "Really? Why?" She said, "You're going to decide if I'm going to go into third grade." And I said, "Actually, that's correct." I said, "But I've been watching you, and there's a problem." Really? What is it? In the third grade, you have to know how to write in cursive writing. And you only print. And so that's a that's a bit of a problem. And she looks at me and says, can you come back on Monday? And I said, yes, I can. So I come back on Monday and I come into the back of the room. She waves. I go over to talk to her. And she said, I want to show you something. She pulls out a notebook and you know what the punchline is going to be. Pages and pages and pages of stunning cursive writing. And she looks at me and says, now can I go to third grade? And I said, yes, you can. So if we listen to the children, they, they will actually tell us what they need. And our job is to create conditions to make it more possible that they can become who they are. And everything that you're describing also, and I'm, I'm paying attention to the pronouns that you're using, using we, so that it does become a collective effort and learning becomes a collective effort. So I, I imagine working, you know, you, you brought up earlier assessment, and th this is probably a lot of the, the biggest, um, uh, the biggest piece of resistance because of the paradigm in which we live that is so difficult to extract from our, from our souls, from our inner core is, how do you know they're learning? If you're not assessing them with a test and a number, how do you know they're learning? Well, if learning is only content, and that's the only thing that matters, and content does matter, the question for a community is, what are the best ways to assess content knowledge? Is it in a, a multiple choice test? Or is it in an ill-structured problem where there is no immediate, quote, right answer? And you ask kids to develop a protocol, to develop a process, whatever it is. So the real, when you know what your identity is, who you are, and what is it that you are about? Why are you here? So when I say generative and life affirming, that I don't say school. I don't say AP. Okay. So what does that mean? You've got to unpack the language. It's not just flowery language and you say, oh, that's great. It's what the heck does this mean? How does it translate into exactly your question? And so, um, and when we started, I had a lot of pushback from parents. Push, not pushback is not the right word. They were scared because I described the kind of environment and they said, well, how, might, how could my kids get into Harvard? 
How could my kids get into Stanford? How could my kids, because they assume that that's maybe where their kids would want to go or would go. And uh, so I, I thought, you know, that's not a trivial question for parents. So I talked to my team and the admission staff, because, you know, you have to be admitted to IMSA. And I said, um, go to, I want you and your team to go to the places that our students would most likely apply and bring our syllabus, our curriculum, and the way we assess our students, the problems that we ask them to solve and and how they work in problem-based learning. But bring the syllabus and bring that as evidence of their learning. And say to the admission team from Harvard and Stanford, if you didn't get GPA, grade point average, or AP scores, which we didn't give the AP unless they wanted to take it, it was totally individual, um, would you take our kids? And they said, in a heartbeat. Because they would see, they saw the curriculum and they saw what the kids could do. Now that takes time. It was not trivial for parents. So yes, we have to assess how do we know, but it's stepping way back. How do we know what? How do we know what they know? Yes. So how, what's the best way to, to most authentic, not best, most authentic way to assess content knowledge? What's the most authentic way to assess the ability to use content knowledge to solve a real world problem? What's the best way to indicate capacity to do research? What questions are asked? What protocols are used? It's not, it takes time, it's not simple. It's not a check on a, on a transcript, but this is the real conversation. We have, this is the one we have to have. And my geeky self is going to bring in Heisenberg's uncertainty principle here. Because in most schools, that, that score is at a certain point in time. But if Heisenberg uncertainty principle tells us that you can't both know uh, the, the location of an electron as well as, as its velocity. And when you talk, but when you talk about learning as a process, which is continuous, that's the velocity. And if it's a finite or not a finite thing, it's something that, that is achieved, then it's, then it's that point. Then we're talking about two different languages, but but what you're talking about is is that trajectory, the trajectory of learning, rather than that picture. Right. Exactly. Arc trajectory. Right. We're navigating. I mean, the vocabulary and the language is so so different. Because navigation is a journey. It's not an arriving. You know, um, what questions did you ask in school today? Not what did you learn. You know. So. Um, uh, this is the right time, you know, people talk about Kronos time and Kairos time and liminal space and um, the level of uncertainty, confusion, despair, uh, fill in the blank, uh, is overwhelming right now. If there, was any, um, if there was any moment that we say, guys, take a step back, take a deep breath, let's come together and acknowledge what is not working. I mean, it's I'm I'm thrilled that people are in the conversation, uh, and I I always you know if they if they say it I say no not the right word. Um, when do we get back to normal? No 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 no. Please, normal was never normal. Normal was always toxic. Let's let's talk about what it means normally to be a living, breathing, dynamic, innovative, creative, learning being connected to every other human or not learning being and see what that will take to come alive. 
because that's the spirit, the energy, the gifts of who we are that need to be in the in the world. You know, I uh, I'm part of a group of you cannot fix the you cannot change the world as it is, but by opening to the world as it is, we can discover that goodness, decency, bravery, and courage are available not only to us but to every human being. And so it's in, it's inviting that, but people have to change their narrative. Oh, I can't do that. That's too hard. I can't do that. Yes, yes, we can. It's who we are. Well, listen, uh, I want to thank you for your time. And, and I'm just going to ask one last question. Um, you mentioned a book that was coming up. Uh, that's, that's on your horizon. What, what, what else, including that, I suppose, that and what else is on your horizon? What are you thinking about? What's in the plans? What, what's going to happen in, in, in your life? Well, I'm, you know, I, I'm, the book I'm working on is my memoir. Um, and it's the question I'm holding is, how did you become who you are? Okay, I think it's, I think there is importance in remembering our stories and understanding um, the roots from which we came. So I'm working, I'm working on that, but I do simultaneously, uh, I do a lot of speaking and working with leaders and groups and people who just want uh, to be in a new conversation, comfortably and safely be in a new conversation. And so um, I'm out and about in a multiplicity of places and uh, did a lot of work in many countries in Africa and Vietnam and Bhutan and all in lots of places. Uh, but I'm, right now I'm focused on my on finishing this book, but uh, I, I still want to be in conversation with people who just want to to be in the in the new the conversation of the new story that is really not new, um, that needs to be told and lived, so that we can become, as I said many times, who we really are. Well, listen, thank you so much. My pleasure, Benjamin. Good to be with you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. We are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our blog www.coconut-thinking.design. Uh, you'll find a lot of articles there, some resources, uh, more podcast episodes, and of course, www.intrepidednews.com. Looking forward to your comments. Get in touch with us on LinkedIn or on the website. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.design. And looking forward to speaking with you soon. Bye-bye.